0: recovery elevator episode 69
1: anyone that you know tells you you have to believe this or have to believe that um, i would encourage the the listener not to really pay too much attention to that those are just suggestions
0: welcome to the recovery elevator podcast my name is paul thank you so much for joining us according to the recovery elevator sobriety tracker on my phone i've been sober for 21 months and two days on today's podcast, I've got Steven Gerard. He got sober at age 22, and he's been sober for 32 years. Wow. I often get asked, what about the courageous and brave interviewees on this podcast? Do they stay sober? Are they cured? Whatever happens to them? They came on the podcast. They created accountability. They helped themselves. They helped listeners. Hell, they helped me stay sober. They're probably sober, right? Well, I often wonder this. I was at my brother's wedding this last weekend, which I'll talk about at the end of this podcast episode, but somebody asked me about the guests on the podcast, and they asked how many of them are still sober, and I looked at them, and I said, I don't know, probably the majority of them. That's a great question. I fully understand the deck is stacked against us. Not only are we dealing with something incredibly lethal, the drug called alcohol, we're also dealing with something potentially more lethal. In my case, it definitely was. That is the stigma. I also get asked, what is Recovery Elevator? And if I could summarize that in a sentence, it's, we offer hope through community and connection, partnering sobriety-seeking individuals with other like-minded people. But if I could summarize what this is all about, why I'm doing this every Monday, I can summarize it in one word. I'm going after you, the stigma. It's the stigma, not so much the alcohol that led me to a failed suicide attempt in 2014. I was ashamed. I was so goddamned ashamed. My head was held low, looking at the ground when I walked in my first 5, 10, 20, 30 AA meetings. But what I know now, that was not a walk of shame. Those first few visits to the room's of Alcoholics Anonymous were probably the most courageous walks that I have ever made in my entire life. And that also applies to you. If you have pulled yourself up from the depths of hell and I have been there many times, and you have made it into those rooms. And it does not matter if you've been successful in sobriety up to this moment or not. You're still are courageous. You're fighting a beast, a beast that when it's locked up in the cage, seemingly dormant, the beast will convince you to open the latch, to unlock it. It won't bite this time. Things are gonna be different. You two are gonna get along. You two had a lot of great memories together. Hell, the beast has been in the cage for one week, two months. A year, 10 years, the beast, the alcohol, the addiction, alcoholism has had time to soften. Its sharp edges have been mollified, not nearly as lethal as before. So you reach down, you open the latch. Hell, everybody else around you is drinking, even when you watch TV. The ads are on TV everywhere, including the Super Bowl. But soon as the latch is lifted and the door starts to swing open even a fraction, that's when it starts. And that is the scary part about this, guys. This shit is very, very real. I sway from the original question, but the answer is definitely not the majority have stayed sober, maybe half. When I got back home from my brother's wedding, I looked at iTunes, I went down the list of all the individual people, almost 70 alcoholics that I had spoken with for at least an hour on the phone, connected personally with. Some of their phone numbers are in my phone stored at this moment, emails in my inbox. They're part of my recovery network. As I went down the list, my heart started to sink. The bright optimism in my response saying, "Uh, I don't know, probably the majority of people have stayed sober that have interviewed on this podcast. It was crushed when I started going down the list of interviewees. Sure, there were a lot of success stories and I'll get to those in a second, but there were many that I've reached out to. I've sent emails and texts, even made phone calls to, have not heard back from them. You know what, maybe they didn't relapse. Maybe they're still sober. Maybe they have a new email address. Maybe they're on vacation and when they came back, their inbox was so inundated with messages, they didn't see mine. Maybe they changed their phone number. Maybe they realized the beast has been in the cage for quite some time and they don't even need to open up my email. It's like, oh, that's the recovery guy. I've been sober for six months, not me. I'm good. But as I went down that list, there was a lot of people that I didn't know. I have not heard from them, but I saw some that were hard to read. There were a lot of people that I didn't know. I don't know if they're sober or not. My optimistic mind would like to think that they are still sober. However, the numbers can paint a more pejorative picture. In reality, after going down my list, I'd be surprised if 50% of the people are sober today. Probably 60 to 70% of the people have relapsed. A lot of them, they're back on the wagon. They got up. They picked themselves up off the ground from getting their asses kicked again from alcohol. That happened to me no shortage of times. There are success stories like Robert, like James, but unfortunately, there are many others that don't get back on that wagon, and that breaks my heart. Okay, Recovery Elevator, let's hear from our interviewee. Gerard, how are you? Great. Thanks for having me, Paul. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Stephen, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober?
1: This last week on the 1st of June, I celebrated 32 years clean and sober. Nice job. Thirteen
0: years clean and sober. No, wait, wait, wait. Did 30, you say 30, thirty-two? You, you 32 said two years. Thirty, thirty-two years clean and sober. Yeah. That that's what I thought yes. you said, but yeah. I didn't know that was possible. It, you're, you're lying. Oh, yeah, me, right? You're messing with me, Steve. You're I mean, messing with you
1: me. You know, it's kind of funny because now I've been clean and sober you know, almost ten years longer than I was alive when I got clean and sober. I, I, I can't. I don't know how the where the time went. To be honest with you, Paul. Goodness gracious. And Stephen,
0: unfortunately, I don't have a gold medal for you, but I got a silver medal because Paul, his name is Paul uh, Sheenham, I think he's at episode three, four, five, or six. He had a little more than 32 years, but you got the second most sobriety out of 68 interviewees. Congratulations, man.
1: Well, thank you. But you know, it's not a competition. We're all doing this a day at a time, whether you have 32 years or you're in your early recovery, it's a day at a time. I agree with that. I am
0: a competitive dude, Stephen, but when somebody has a near sobriety date as mine and but they've got more time than me, that's something I don't want to win. Um, and Stephen, before we get further into the interview, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, are you married, sure. and uh, stuff like that.
1: I'll be 55 on the 9th, so I got clean and sober roughly you know, a little bit over a week uh, before my 23rd birthday. I live in New York City. I'm a professional musician, percussionist. I also teach percussion. I use percussion to teach reading, writing, and arithmetic with uh, developmentally and intellectually challenged teens and adults. I've been doing that for 10 years. And I'm also a recovery coach consultant, and I've been doing that roughly since 2002, 2003. That's just a little brief bio.
0: Yeah, I just, yeah. about 75 questions just popped in my head okay. there, but uh, sure. let's, uh, <laughs> I'll just stick to the normal questions before we get more specific and detailed there. Referencing the podcast title, when did you realize that your elevator had stopped, aka reached its bottom? My math is correct. You were 22 years old. What happened?
1: That's, that's correct. Well, you know, I had many bottoms before I actually hit my bottom. It's just that I decided to keep on digging. And my first bottom was when I was like 74, 75. I was a teenager, and there was um, it was much easier to get drugs uh, than alcohol uh, when you're in your early teens. And I went to a drug clinic around the corner from where I used to get drugs, and I went in. And I told them I thought I was a drug addict, and they told me I was too young. So in in essence, my first time I hit my ele- you know, my elevator hit the ground was then. I didn't ask for help again until 1984, and. So there was a lot of unmanageability, a lot of pain, a lot of train wrecks, a lot of incomprehensible demoralization along the way until I actually hit my bottom. And, you know, I did drugs and alcohol with a lot of intensity, as I'm sure you did, too. But the turning point was a few days before I got clean and sober, my neighbors were stabbed to death. And that really uh, you know I had been in a blackout for almost the whole week so I was in a bit of a panic because I didn't know what I was gonna tell the police when they came to ask me where I was I had no idea for the most part a little bit of the time was a out, but most of it was a full-on blackout I was drinking around the clock and I believe that that situation that terrible uh, situation kind of helped me to look at my life and where I was because physically I was in really, really bad shape. The, you know, I was young, but I started very young. And, I st- and when I started, I started with a lot of intensity. And I continued that intensity throughout all my years of drinking and drugging. And where I was during that time period was, you know, I was physically, mentally, and spiritually bankrupt. But physically, I, you know, not to be overly dramatic, I think I was pretty close to death myself. And so what I did was, uh, you know, I knew about AA, I uh, actually called up, my parents were out of town, I, I was in Seattle, and I called up a friend of my dad's and I said, you need to have me locked up somewhere. And he took me to uh, uh, Cabrini Hospital in Seattle where I spent roughly a month of, you know, my first, uh, you know, 30 days were in that hospital. And uh, so that, that's how I hit my bottom, not really quite sure what else to add to that, Paul.
0: No, that sounds okay. Um, that you you pretty much covered yeah. it right there, and yeah, and uh, Stephen, I'm excited to tap into your sage wisdom of 32 years of experience. And you said three words right there, which listeners, that is a value bomb. It was spirituality mentally and physically which encompasses this in a three-part disease now the other gentleman who i interviewed who had i think 35 or 36 years of sober we also discussed the same thing and alcohol kills in three ways this is a three-part disease and i want to hear your input on this steven first thing to go is a spirituality the second thing to go is is the mental component and then the third thing to go is your body physically falls apart now the healing process is in reverse order Physically, your body will heal. Mentally, that's come next, and then spiritually, that heals. Have you experienced the same thing? Have you heard about that?
1: Well, you know, I didn't really, you know, I grew up with great parents, but I didn't really grow up with spirituality because I grew up under the influence. So uh, that was something that took me a while to really grasp. But you're right. I, I do agree mostly with what you said in terms of the progression and also your recovery because, you know, physically... As my body started to heal, then my mind started to get more clarity. And as I got more clarity and more honesty in my recovery, then the spirituality started to happen. You know, I can pretty much uh, break down my last 32 years of recovery with two words, giving and asking. Those are the two primary uh, elements of my recovery over the last 32 years. And giving uh, was not... Uh, Part of my vocabulary prior to getting clean and sober it was all about what I could get so when I got clean and sober I sought out people who were very happy because that was something that was very uh, appealing to me because I hadn't really known uh, true happiness and the things that those people were doing are what I started to model and I ran with a guy named Psy T and Cy was a real character And uh, for example, he won the gong show. He did a drum solo, like cozy, cool drum solo on the gong show, and he won it. And Psy was really instrumental because he taught me, he said, look, you do not need to have five years to be of service and to help someone. And I started doing a lot of uh, service work with Psy. So that was a big part of my foundation. And when you think about it, least my experience has been that working with others is a spiritual act. So while I didn't know a whole lot about spirituality, I was engaging in activities that were in essence spiritual and asking, you know, like I said, I didn't ask for help. Uh, The first time I asked for help was a teenager when I went to that clinic. And then I asked for help again, uh, when I went into treatment, but in order to, to stay away and not relapse, on drugs and alcohol when I got out of the hospital, it was pretty apparent to me that I was going to need the humility to ask for help. And initially, I didn't really have a connection with a higher power, so I made the group my higher power, and I really made a concerted effort to ask other people to help me. I have not stayed clean and sober in a vacuum. I do not stay clean and sober in a vacuum, It's it's an ongoing process, and it's largely contingent on asking for help from others and from a higher power. And Steven, can you clarify the higher power
0: thing for me because when I said spirituality, I'm mm-hmm. sure that automatically sure. You know, 54 people just turned off the podcast and you other know, sure. another it just another people just shut down. For me, I you know spirituality does not mean a dude on a cross. It's it's the wind no. in the pine trees for me. It's just something greater than myself. And you just said you refer to it as, you know, the group of drunks, like the whole
1: group. Well, that's what it was initially for me. You know, I turned my will and my life over to, to the group. Because that's a power greater than myself. Like, for example, right now I'm talking to you. That's a power greater than myself. That would be called
0: um, Skype, everybody.
1: Yes. Right. And, you know, I, I really liked when I used to hear people say, you know, uh, well, not to show disrespect for anyone that adheres to a religion because I, I, I certainly don't. Uh, I certainly think that that's a great thing for people. It works for, but when I've heard people say, you know, uh, religion is for people who don't want to go to hell, and spirituality is for people who have already been there and don't want to go back, I kind of, you know, I, I kind of identify with that. But I will say that when I got clean and sober, I didn't really like hearing about um, God or any of that stuff. It was just, uh, you know, I survived by my wits. I didn't survive by turning my life over to a higher power. I didn't do any of that, you know. And it's it's t- it took time. You know, and it's not a requirement to stay clean and sober. You can stay clean and sober and still be, you know, if you're an atheist, you can stay clean and sober. Anyone that, you know, tells you you have to believe this or have to believe that, um, I would encourage the, the listener not to really pay too much attention to that. Those are just suggestions.
0: Wait, wait, wait. You said something
1: yeah. earlier. It takes time? Like, uh, Well, for me, that was my experience. It took me time to develop a relationship with a higher power.
0: Oh, okay. And, and yeah. so expand a bit on that in recovery in general. A lot of people, including myself, when I first quit drinking in 2010, I was impatient. I said, wait a second. I have been sober for four days. What the hell's going on? My life is not back to normal. Talk about how this takes time.
1: Well, you know, I didn't know... A lot about basic uh living i didn't have life skills when i got clean and sober and it took me a while to learn how to do basic life skills um, for example i didn't know how to eat properly i didn't eat meals at regular times i didn't have social skills you know any th- anytime i did anything socially it was under the influence i didn't have experience as a just a clean and sober person walking through the world i didn't have skills i didn't have uh so, uh, social skills in any capacity. So when did and, you learn uh, how to play the drums? I started playing drums, uh, geez, 12 years old. And it was probably one of the only, it was the only real positive things I had going for me in, in my life. And I did it with a lot of gusto, but unfortunately my disease uh, took away the drumming, because I couldn't do it under the influence, obviously. when you are I mean, some people can pull it off. I certainly couldn't the way I was drinking and drugging. It's a very physical activity. It requires all four limbs. You can't do it if you're loaded. At least that's been my experience. <laughs> At least that's you your know. experience. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the way I was drinking anyway. Yeah, you might want to ask yeah. the, the <laughs> Def
0: Leppard drummer with, uh, with one arm and, and
1: two legs if he can do it yeah. loaded, and he's probably like, no, sure. no way. Yeah. Um,
0: I don't want to cut you off. Uh, talk to me more about the patience thing and how this just takes time.
1: Well, you know, I mentioned Cy earlier, and Cy used to say, sometimes time takes a long effing time. And, you know, for me personally, I felt like I was, Am i looking back, I was probably a baby in my first three to five years. And the other thing is, is that I used to hear a lot when I was in my early recovery that they would say, you know, you, you spent X amount of years walking into the woods, it takes X amount of years to walk out of the woods. And that makes some sense, too. But in reality, if you really want to get out of the woods, I would suggest doing the steps. That's been my experience. I learned how to how to really live and be comfortable in my own skin through working the steps.
0: Stephen, I'm sure a lot of listeners were reaching a conclusion. They're like, "Please say, bring a flashlight. Please say, bring a flashlight. If you really want to get out of the woods, bring a flashlight. Don't say the steps. Damn it, he said the steps." you've probably seen it as a career coach. There's so much hesitation and trepidation for doing the steps, but what was your experience when you did the steps and also having witnessed people that finally they take that blind leap of faith and they do the steps. What's the outcome usually?
1: Well, there's many outcomes and I'll get to that second Paul, but you know, I, when I got clean and sober, I wanted to be comfortable in my own skin. I had never been comfortable in my own skin. So when I met people who were really happy and comfortable in their own skin, and they were laughing genuinely, and they were cut-ups, and they were fun to be around, that was something that I wanted. And so that's what they did. And, as I, and the other thing is, one of the best pieces of advice I got in my early recovery was, an old-timer told me, he said, look, don't worry about working the steps to perfection Work them to the best of your ability because you're going to be working them the rest of your life anyway. Just be as honest as you're capable of being, and that should be enough to serve you well. And that's been my experience. I continue to work these steps because my life changes. And so for me anyway, um, it's not just about putting the, the drugs and the alcohol down. It's about changing. And, and there's just so much you can do uh, with your life uh, when you're not worried about taking that first trick or drug. And Stephen, I want to ask you a question about the changing component
0: of it. When did you realize that you started to change yourself? What I mean is you probably try to change a lot of other things, external environments. You probably even try to change the weather, the way people drove, the way people walked past you on the street. When did you make the connection that you're like, wait a second, if I want to get sober, I think I might have to change myself.
1: When I got out of treatment, I realized I needed to change my playmates, my and where I hung out and, and so many things in order to stay clean and sober. I don't think I would have made it if I hadn't made some of those basic changes. Um, And that was the first step, I think, in terms of getting a foundation. It's just an ongoing process. Um, I'm really, you know, by working the steps over the years, I've changed in spite of myself. You know, when they talk about a psychic change as the result of the 12 steps, if you continue to go through the steps, you're going to continue. My experience has been, I shouldn't say you, has been that I've continued to have psychic changes. And as a result, I've changed repeatedly each time I've gone through the 12 steps. And that's the best answer I can give you.
0: No, a great answer. What do you, and so each time you go through the steps, I am just about to finish step 11. I'm about to close the book, boom, case closed. Do you mean I got to do the steps again?
1: I would say you have the opportunity to do the steps again. Options are good. Um, yeah. And the reason being is that you're going to change and your life is going to change. And my experience was the longer I stayed clean and sober, the more self-honesty I got. And that's what the old timer was referring to when he told me, do them to the best of your ability, because I didn't have a whole lot of self-honesty or perspective because I hadn't grown up with self-honesty and perspective. Over a period of time, I've stayed sober. I've gone through the steps. I've taken other people through the steps. As a result of working with others and taking them through the steps, I learned because I had to articulate what the steps meant to me. I got a deeper understanding of the steps. And so I've just gotten more self-honest. And with that honesty comes the ability to work the steps in a different way for me. And so that's been really exciting. I'll tell you, I love life. When I got clean and sober, I did not love life. In fact, I pretty much wanted to die. So, you know, the question for me is not what is the meaning of life, but what is the meaning of my life? What do I bring to the table? What do I want to do with my life? And that's the question I would encourage all the listeners to ask themselves, because if you stay clean and sober, you're going to have the opportunity to be a positive force for good. Options are good.
0: Again, yeah. now back it up just a quick second. You said when you first okay, got sober, sure. you wanted to end your life. You, you hated life. Maybe you didn't well, say end your life, but you hated I, life. What, I, what did you do? And yeah. did you tell me about that transition. And did you know it was happening or did you just wake up one day and be like, wait, I
1: don't want to jump off a bridge anymore. Talk to me. Well- you know alcohol is a depressant and when you're loading your body full of alcohol at least my experience has been is that it's just you're not gonna you know you're not gonna be really looking at the bright side of life and also if you're under the influence it's gonna affect every area of your life and you know my mind was so messed up from the you know alcohol and drugs over the years and you know I was really frustrated because I wasn't able to have forward motion in my life. there was things I wanted to do and I wasn't able to do them and so that made me really bummed out When I got clean and sober I realized that if I stay clean and sober I could do what I wanted to do with my life. Wow what a revelation you know I have seen people in recovery and some people that I've worked with you know they didn't go to high school and they ended up becoming lawyers. I firmly believe that for the most part, if you're willing to do the footwork, there's pretty much nothing you can't accomplish clean and sober. Now, granted, I'm not going to be able to play, you know, basketball for the Knicks. But if I wanted to be a lawyer, for example, I could probably go do it. It's not something I want to do, but wow, what a great thing! Options, or you know, like you mentioned, could, yeah. yeah, yeah. Or you
0: could probably be in the band and play the drums for the band that welcomes the Knicks onto the court. That that's a possibility.
1: I, I I could be, yeah, I could, or I could be the drummer playing Madison Square Garden.
0: Yes, yes, that is the venue. And you know, listeners, what he was just saying, like, when you get sober, you can ch- take over the world. You know, it feels like something that should be on a poster when you walk into your third-grade classroom. But, uh, well, not in a third-grade classroom when you get sober, but you get the point. But, Stephen, I agree 100%. It was like two or three months after I got sober, the possibilities and options were endless. And I decided to dive into my businesses i am an entrepreneur and i actually love the challenge of figuring out ways to make businesses work and fast forward two years i've got four great problems all these businesses in sobriety started to grow and i am just trying to locate you know how to employ 13 people plus 13 subcontractors it's confusing it's hard but sobriety has given me these wonderful problems is is what i'm getting at you know what have you seen in sobriety that you've been able to accomplish in 32 years i know that's a long list but maybe tell me like your first your your top three or four
1: accomplishments in sobriety well you know i i can run down some of them for you Uh, i was a high school dropout and i went on to get a college degree i also did not know how to write because i didn't go to high school i was more concerned with hitting drums than hitting the books and uh when I went back to school, I applied what I learned in the program, and I went to the learning center, and there were these kids who just gotten out of high school, and I said, "Well, I don't know what I'm doing," and they taught me how to write, and I went and got the uh, a couple different newspapers, and I highlighted all the uh, the grammatic the, the grammar in in these uh, newspapers, and the long and short of it is, I have uh, have poetry published. I just wrote my first book last year on percussion. I've contributed to a few other books, and I've written for newspapers and magazines, all because I had the willingness to ask for help. So I've been able to take that concept to other areas. Um, When I had uh, 10 years clean and sober, I went to Thailand. I was a forest monk. I've made over 25 recordings. I've toured all over the world. I've toured Japan. I've probably done, I don't know, 15, 20 times to Europe to play music. I've given over 14,000 drum lessons. I have a really rich life today, and it's because I do the footwork.
0: Quick question: Who's your favorite professional sure. drummer?
1: I have many. <laughs> you know, I really, you know, I, it depends on the era and the type of music. You know, uh, for jazz, I really like Elvin Jones, and I highly recommend that uh, if you haven't checked out um, John Coltrane's recording, *A Love Supreme*.
0: Um, I don't know drummers that well, but I know Danny okay. Carey for Tool is ridiculously okay. good. It might just be he bangs really hard, but he's awesome. Oh, there's a million of them out there. Yeah, there there are no shortage. Talk to me about uh, how drums helped you get sober and probably stay sober. And is it somewhat meditative?
1: It is meditative, but I wouldn't consider it meditation. You know, I'm not a new age kind of guy, okay? But there are a lot of vibrations that come off of drums. That's why in so many cultures, the healer always has a drum. And, uh, you know, I use percussion to teach uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic uh, as well. How, how, to explain intellect. how uh, that works. I'm, I'm curious. Well, it's a perceptual motor match. And so if I'm working with someone, uh, we, uh, we work on prepositional concepts, lateral movement, Um, counting for example we work on math I'll roll the dice we add up the numbers on the drums and they say it they hear it and they feel it simultaneously even if they're nonverbal I always approach every student as if they can with every exercise and to my surprise a couple years ago in Los Angeles I had a, a, a young man he was 15 years old he had never spoken in his life and I said Victor what's your name and he went to the drum and he went Victor and the whole room went silent you know the great thing about it too is that you know there's no limit to how far you can advance so it's an ongoing thing and uh, so that's very rewarding so
0: so this sounds like this guy Victor pulled a Peter Frampton on the drums that's incredible
1: yeah yeah and and I and uh, also um, a lot of the down students I'd worked with some of them were really shy and they weren't the most verbal. Some of them that were verbal were very, very shy. And so something about having a drum in front of them uh, helped them to communicate um, in a way because they didn't feel like all of the focus was just on them. They had an instrument in front of them that was kind of a buffer. At least that's okay. my observation anyway. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And and Stephen, you've been sober for 32 years. So you're cured, right? Like you just wake up and just no. lead your normal life. You don't do any recovery work, right?
1: Oh, No. No, I'm not cured. I'll never. I'm I don't kidding, think I'll it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess. Would you like to know my daily routine a little bit? Then yeah, I'll tell yeah, you what but, I do. Yeah, absolutely. sure. That's that's the
0: question. Okay. Walk me through a day okay. of of Stephen Gerard and how you stay sober.
1: Well, I, I get up pretty early in the morning. I'm not really a night owl, and uh, first thing I do, honestly, is I make espresso and uh, I meditate for 20 minutes, and then I pray for five minutes. So that's pretty much how I start my day. And you know, living in New York City, it's really helpful to do that before I go out into the world because I don't know what I'm going to get hit with. And uh, so after I've done all that, I usually go down to my studio in Times Square to work on music, and I'm uptown a ways. I take the express train. I say the third step prayer as a mantra to 72nd Street. And while I'm And then before we hit the stop, I ask God to keep me away from the first drink or drug for that day. Then from 72nd down to 42nd, I say the seventh step prayer and I ask God to help me uh, with my character defects. And I have about four of them that I outlined that I'm really working on. And I do that and I ask to be of service. And then I get out of the train on 42nd Street. I'm in Times Square. Bam, I'm ready. So that's kind of how I start my day. Wow. Um, I like that
0: same routine. how How long have you been done that for?
1: I've been doing that that routine. I've been back here in New York City for a year now, almost exactly, and that's what I do every morning. I'm usually down in my studio about five, six days a week. And uh, some days I teach right after that, too, as well. And I do like, I try to meditate for about 20 minutes in the evening, too. That is incredible. You were talking fast. I was writing all that stuff down. Sorry, what would you say? And the other thing I do is I try to get uh, to a meeting if I can. I, I go to... Usually no less than four meetings a week and I don't go to the meetings uh, so much anymore because I feel like I'm gonna drink if I don't go to the meeting. I find that uh, going to meetings really uh, relieves a lot of stress. They help center me when I'm in a meeting. I'm in a more uh, a pretty spiritual environment and I call it a spiritual environment because there's people there who are really trying to make a change in their life and help others. And I think that uh, my physiology changes when I actively listen. And what I mean by that is if I turn on the television, I can be, you know, I can kind of be distracted. I'm, I'm not really that focused. If I go to a meeting and I, and I make a sincere effort to listen to the person talking without having the radio station go off in my head, which I'm guilty of, too. I'm not, you know, perfect. Others, oftentimes, I'm sitting there taking inventory or thinking what they should do. But in general, if I really listen, um, that really affects my physiology. And that's one of the reasons why I think when I leave a meeting, I feel so much better. You've been sober
0: for 32 years. You go to about four meetings a week. Now, when I first went to AA, I saw gentlemen like you that have been sober for years, but yet they're mm-hmm. at all these meetings. And I thought it was like a sentence like, oh my gosh, do I really have to do this? But now, after being sober for nearly 22 months, we have an amazing resource at our hands of, like you just said, you go to a meeting and you'll feel better. It's a reprieve. It's a relief. My brother just got married this past weekend and I saw him for the couple of days leading up to that wedding. And so many times I looked at him and in my head, I'm like, Mark, you need to go to a meeting, man. You're going to feel so much better. It's amazing. Um, And and, and so I want to actually go back to what you said earlier about give and then ask. Um, I read a blog post on your website. Would it be in that order—give
1: and ask—or did you first have to ask before you could give? That's a great question, Paul. I think I was doing them pretty much simultaneously. Oftentimes, you know, sometimes you know, giving can be very simple. It doesn't necessarily have to be a real, you know, formalized thing. Sometimes just listening to someone who needs to share, um, or, or if you have a car, picking somebody up and taking them to a meeting, but in my early recovery, it was very, very important for me to ask. You know, and it's still really important, but I had I would not have made it through my first two years of recovery if I was not really making a very concerted effort to ask people to help me. Asking for help is
0: extremely yeah. difficult and it was no coincidence that I got sober very shortly after I started asking for mm-hmm. help. And and Stephen Sounds like you've toured the world forty or fifty times. What's left on your bucket list to do in sobriety?
1: Well, I want to continue to make records and tour, and uh, I find that really rewarding. Playing music and it's one of the reasons why I moved back here to New York City a year ago. You know, that's sobriety. I had the op- you know I had the option to move here to play music uh, because I'm clean and sober. But to answer your question, there's a few things I'd like to do. I'd like to go to Cuba. And uh, this might sound really funny to a lot of your listeners. I'd like to learn how to tap dance. Mm, I hear there's a pair of. I want to do. You know? Yeah, yeah, footwear like made specifically for that. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, here in New York City, there's this great tap dance place down in the village. Uh, it's just some. It's very drumming. You know, it's very, uh, very. um, you know, rhythmic. In fact, the uh, jazz drummers were influenced by the, the dancers back in the day. Up up in pretty much through the 20s, the drummer's role in jazz was pretty much just keeping straight time. And then the drummers started riffing off the tap dancers. So there's a real relationship that <laughs> sure. started way back then between drumming and tap dancing. Yeah. So, it's you know, Buddy Rich, I believe, was a great tap dancer, for example.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I yeah. see the crossover yeah. on that. And before we get to the rapid fire round... I want to talk to you a little bit about your podcast. You have a podcast and you're a recovery coach. Where can we find out more about you and and talk to us about your podcast? What what is the podcast?
1: Okay. Well, if anyone would like to get a hold of me for any reason, uh, they can reach me at realdealrecoverypodcast at gmail.com. That's realdealrecoverypodcast at gmail.com. And the podcast is called Real Deal Recovery. It's topic-based. We, we keep it to about 25 minutes, and we stick to a, a specific topic for that podcast. So it's a lot of fun, and we started it about 10, 11 weeks ago, and uh, we're getting a lot of real positive feedback.
0: Nice you work on that. And you're a recovery coach. How much do you charge to do the steps? Is it like 50 bucks a step? Is it like a package well,
1: deal? You know, it, 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 this is not sponsorship, and uh, it depends. I have two eight-week programs and one is for a person in early recovery to help develop a foundation, and the other is for a person who may be clean and sober for a while who wants to work on a specific area. So, you know, I like to emphasize this is not sponsorship. What I am is I'm a resource to help people develop, you know, kind of holistically in a lot of different areas of their life, and these are people who just happen to be in recovery. Uh, For the person that's in early recovery, we really uh, make an action plan uh, that's going to help them get a foundation that will hopefully serve them the rest of their life. What
0: would a typical, no, not typical, but what would perhaps a sample action plan look like for somebody who's been, you know, trying to get sober or in like the first couple of days of sobriety?
1: Well, a couple days, the first thing they need to do is detox. That's the first thing. Sure. Um, but let's say the person's been clean and sober for a month or so. I'm not like the Germans. But what I do suggest that they do is uh, really get clear about why they want to stay clean and sober. Until they're really clear about why, they're not really going to be willing to take the actions necessary to really make it happen. And you know what? You need some emotional juice. Fear, in general, in my opinion, is only going to keep you clean and sober for so long. This is just my opinion. And so, but if you get really excited about something, Something you really love and you can get some passion or you just, or, you know, you really want to, maybe some people, their children really inspire them to get clean and sober. The thing that really gave me a buzz was playing music. I really wanted, I didn't want to be a loser because that's where I was heading, you know. I really wanted to play music. And uh, so I suggest that they really look about what they want to do with their life and how they can improve it. I work with them to see where they are. I meet the person where they are and we, we do develop a plan based on where they are as a person. So it's, it's not a one size fits all kind of program.
0: Gotcha. It's tailored yeah. to their specific yeah. needs. Mm-hmm. I love it. It's, it sounds like a very valuable service that you charge for. And in recovery, when I actually started charging for Cafe RE, I got a lot of flack and, and pushback about that. You know, I of a sponsor which passed on freely that was given to him and he passed it on to me i also plan to sponsor somebody free of charge now is this something that you do or you've done in the past as well sponsor people
1: I'm constantly sponsoring people. And you don't charge I, for that, right? I do not charge for that, no. Yeah, absolutely. That yeah. was, yeah, that was I, kind I, of I, a loaded
0: I, question that I asked you no, before no. is, absolutely, I will pass on freely what was given to me. I want to sponsor somebody. It helps me stay sober, and it was your whole ask and give, you know, the whole point behind your blog. But you are providing an extra service that adds yeah, value to somebody's right. life. and. Yeah. You don't have to yeah. convince me at all that people would have to pay for a service like this. Have you seen any flack about that as well? Like, hey, why are you charging for a recovery service?
1: I haven't uh, seen a lot of flack about it because I explained to them from the get-go that I do not charge for sponsorship or taking someone through the steps. I don't. Gotcha. This is a completely separate enterprise in that I'm working with people that are in recovery to develop all of the major areas of the, of their lives. And that's not something that AA does. So it's it's a completely different venture of mine You know, I also work with people that may not be in recovery too as well I've just found that a lot of people are very comfortable with me because I speak their language
0: Yeah, absolutely and Stephen, we have reached the rapid fire round if you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds That'd be great. Are you ready? Let it rock. Mr. Steven. What was your worst memory from drinking?
1: I have a lot of them uh, Lighting my apartment on fire repeatedly. I think the worst was when I lit my ceiling on fire
0: Wow. Number two, we've all heard of the aha moment, Stephen. Did you ever have an oh shit moment when you realized you couldn't control your
1: drinking and using? You know, I never really tried to. I I always wanted more. (laughs) (laughs) I was more. What do you have more? So, you know, one thing I did do that was kind of crazy, and I'll, I'll do this really quickly, is I moved to Dublin, Ireland in 19, what? 81 to get off drugs. I mean, you couldn't move to a more alcoholic oh, place. Yeah, it didn't work out too well. No. Actually, <laughs> Weird. Yeah, I love it. And Steven, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? Uh, my plan is pretty much basically that's been for many years, you know, give, ask, and work the steps.
0: Love it. And Steven, what is your favorite resource in recovery?
1: Um, well, the literature is great. I don't necessarily use an app or anything like that. I find that other people in recovery are oftentimes my greatest resource.
0: That was my answer as well. And Stephen, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? we you gave advice earlier that somebody gave to you, but let's hear something different.
1: Going through the steps to the best of your ability is I think the best advice I've ever gotten. You know, not really sure, other than that, that's the main advice. I also think that, you know, some of the best advice I got was there's nothing you can't do if you're willing to do the footwork. Absolutely. I love it. And Stephen, before we go, what
0: parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in recovery or thinking about getting sober?
1: Well, I think I've covered a lot if you're in recovery, getting clean and sober. I would suggest that you ask yourself some questions. Ask yourself, what is alcohol doing for you? Is it enriching your life? Is it enriching your relationships? Is it helping you with work? Are you experiencing uh, problems as a result of your alcoholism? Um, the AA pamphlet, there's an AA, uh, I think it's called 20 Questions. That pamphlet would be something to check out. It, this is a self diagnosed thing. And uh, so if you don't have any time away from the drugs and alcohol, sometimes it may serve you to go somewhere so you can maybe get a little bit of time away from it so you can really take a look about what it's doing to your life as well
0: steven i'm not that good of a test taker but i remember that 20 questions test that you just mentioned and i i nailed that i got like a 95 percent on that thing i i I, I aced that test. So, yeah, and I would I would
1: imagine, Paul, one of the questions you didn't answer yes was because it didn't apply to you. <laughs> yeah, it was something about like, pregnancy. Like, are you married or something? Right? Yeah, like, did, yeah, yeah, did yeah. you drink
0: during your pregnancy? I was like, no, yeah, darn it, sure. I missed that one. And so, you know, I was scientifically I just wasn't able to get 100%, but that's okay, I'll try again maybe later. But before we go, give listeners your own personalized you-might-be-an-alcoholic if line.
1: Um, you might be an alcoholic if you can't stop drinking once you start drinking.
0: Love it. You also might be an alcoholic, Stephen, if you've lit your apartment on fire multiple times, including the ceiling. <laughs>
1: yeah, I know. I was lighting that, my clothes too. I was always light my clothes on fire. I was like, oh. It's like, well, you
0: must be really, sh- you <laughs> almost live in like a hobbit cave or something, or you're just got fire everywhere. Um, <laughs> love it. Love it. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Stephen, and thanks for helping me stay sober.
1: And thank you very much, Paul, for having me.
0: Before I talk a little bit about my best man's speech this last weekend, let's have a check-in from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $10 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups, and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code elevator for your first month free. Again, use the promo code elevator when signing up for your first month free. If you'd like to support the Recovery Elevator podcast, do so by just shopping. Shop at Amazon, but use the link www.recoveryelevator.com forward slash Amazon. That's all you got to do. And Recovery Elevator, we get a commission from that. Doesn't cost you a thing. This last weekend, I delivered a best man speech for my best friend, my brother Marco. It was a magical wedding. It poured rain right before the ceremony and the colorado rockies did what it does best and the weather completely did a 360 only 15 minutes later i've said this before in a podcast but one of my favorite quotes of all times from the movie a river runs through it which was filmed no less than 45 miles from where i'm sitting right now is although life is a work of art the moment cannot last there were about 42 of those moments this weekend at the wedding Watching my brother dance with my mom for the mother-son dance was spectacular. In fact, I was convinced there was a pack of wild horses around because my eyes, they just started to water. And I'm very allergic to horses. What sobriety allowed me to do was be there. Be in the moment. Ish. I say ish because that's something I'm really struggling with. To be fully in the moment. After the ceremony, a lot of people came up to me and said, hey, great job. In my mind, I'm like, well, I just stood there. I didn't fall, so thank you. Yeah, no kidding. I did a great job. I just stood there for 12 minutes. I rock. Yes, I rule. One person came up and they said, yeah, great job. You are very fidgety. I laughed because I know I'm fidgety. I have ADHD and sitting still for me is a challenge to say the least. I would rather unsuccessfully attempt a hard Sudoku puzzle than sit or stand idle for any more than 30 seconds. It's very hard for me to do. But I was in the moment-ish. Again, acceptance is the answer. I'm okay with in the moment-ish. Maybe one day, hopefully, I'll reach a moment where I can fully be in the moment. But at this moment, being in the moment-ish, I'm okay with that. Then came my best man speech. Speaking in front of people in large groups used to terrify me. But after the podcast and after speaking to schools about alcohol, my deepest, darkest secret that I kept under wraps for nearly a decade, I've actually become to enjoy public speaking. I love it. So I delivered my brother's best man speech. I was cruising right along just about to the end when all of a sudden a pack of wild horses again just must have ran all around the venue because I I just started to water up. My eyes just didn't stop. In fact, I'm pretty sure I saw a black stallion in the distance, That, that had to be it but I wasn't allowed to finish. There was one line that I didn't say because I just couldn't say it. I tried, but I sounded like a babbling, bumbling brook. And that line was, Mark, I can't say with 100% confidence that I'd be here today without you. I mean that with 100% sincerity. When I came out of my DUI jail cell in the summer of 2014, the officer said, your brother is waiting outside to pick you up. It was 8.30 in the morning. I'd gotten a DUI the previous night before. I looked at the officer and said, my brother, that's no way he lives in Washington, looked at me and shrugged, said, yeah, I don't know, your brother's out there, or he claims to be your brother, walked out, sure enough, there was Marco, everybody needs a Marco, I'm lucky to have a Marco, in the speech, I admitted a mantra that I always say to myself, WWMD, what would Marco do? My brother, he's always been raising the bar to levels so high that it's nearly, in fact, it's impossible for me to attain. I'm just going to say that right now. For one, I can't high jump over a six-foot bar. I'm not a pole vault state champion. I have to practice a lot at things to be good at them, even if I do get good at it. My brother, he'll look at something, not even practice it, and then he'll be really good at it. Damn you, Marco. But like swimming upstream can be very tiring, I stopped comparing myself to him. I lowered the bar for myself because I had unrealistic expectations for myself. And this was right around 2012. I don't think it's a coincidence that that is when there was a significant change in my life. Comparing yourself to others is exhausting. Facebook, that news feed, that's not real life. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I like Cafe RE, the private community Facebook news feed, because that is real life. People are in there posting Sure, about great moments, but they're also posting when they're struggling. Everybody is struggling. But scrolling down that normal news feed, finding your friends buying new houses, cars, growing their beautiful families, sure, that's happening, but you don't see the other side of it. So I gotta say, thank you, Marco. Thank you for getting me here today. Before we start, I'd like to give a shout out to Kelly. Today, as I'm recording this, on June 9th, she reached two years of sobriety. You've heard me mention the odds before five percent of people who quit make it to 90 days then that figure starts over and five percent of those people make it to two years kelly you have defied the odds and you are an inspiration kelly has been helping me with recovery elevator for over a year and a half now watching her navigate tumultuous times in sobriety which there have been no shortage of tough times for her is inspiring she's made it through every time sober so kelly Big virtual hug. Congratulations, enjoy and celebrate today. Recovery elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up, we can do this.